If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and we'll be in uh, verses 1 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4. So in this Advent season, we've been picking up on the theme of the heart of God in the incarnation. And Paul, especially in writing the book of Galatians, uh, is writing specifically to enter into this um, pretty, pretty heated debate with these Judaizers who are, who are working through the idea of what does it mean to be ultimately a child of God. And, and in the, the vision and in the mind of the Judaizers, what it means to be a child of God is to be adopted into the family of God on the basis of our own merit. We're adopted because we're worthy of being adopted. Paul, here in Galatians chapter 4, turns that completely on his head and says, not in the least bit. What you actually see, the nature of the heart of God, specifically in the incarnation, is a heart that gives and gives to the uttermost. We're about to take up and read, but before we do, let us ask for the Lord's help in prayer. Our Father, we come to you now on the basis of our union with Christ, your Son. And now, O oh Lord, as we think on these truths, the reality that you've given us to the uttermost by giving us Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Galatians chapter four, starting with verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date is set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So Paul addresses this to say, look at what God has given. The Judaizers have this idea of gospel all wrong. They view God as one who takes and takes and requires and takes. And he says, we see in the person of Christ himself that nothing could be further from the truth. God and the heart of God is a heart 
that gives. And in fact, the first thing that we see that the Lord gives his people is a promise. And in fact, we, we back up just a little bit back into the, the end of chapter 3, with verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul is latching himself onto the promise of God itself and saying, that's something I can cling to. See what God has given his people. He's given us his word, his promise. Now, from there, he does go and he gives a a certain illustration to kind of paint this parallel. God has given us this promise, yes, but uh, there's a time where as a child, uh, he'll use this illustration, we're no different from a slave, we're, we're bound, we're kept, we're under guardians and, and managers. He's probably hearkening back to um, the, the legal status of the Roman era. But uh, both of these, regardless if you're a child or a slave, you, you have no real claim or authority yet, according to Paul in this, in this case. And, and then he goes on to, to really identify, he, he gives us the key to understanding his illustration in the same way. We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, scholars debate exactly what he means by the elementary principles of this world. But nonetheless, whatever view uh, is taken there, the ultimate in this is that we're enslaved ultimately to sin and death. We have a, a major problem. We, we look around at ourselves and, and we need us. A solution. We lack justification. We have a deep sense of guilt. We need to be restored. We need peace in the midst of the chaos. And it won't be found. And, and it's interesting how, how the, the posture of the Judaizers is almost to say, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just fix it. Are, are you living... Uh, and you lack justification, or you have a deep sense of guilt, or you feel like you need to be restored, well, well, then just fix it. Just stop doing what you're doing and, and fix it. And it's interesting how, how, too, our very culture today picks up the same line of thought. Do, do you feel inadequate? Do you feel broken? Well, here's a good self-help manual. Just fix it. If you follow these steps, all your problems will go away. And so we take up the legalist cause, and we just try to fix it. But what do we find when we get to the end of it? We didn't fix anything. We're every bit as broken. We're every bit as empty. And what happens then? Well, we are driven to despair, which leads to Addiction. And we say, if we can't fix anything, then let's just break everything. So we break everything, but once everything's broken, you can't really live in that house. So then what? Despair again. Paul is calling us to see that you need something else. While the world makes these audacious and fallacious promises, we'll fix your problems. The actual answer to our problems is not that. 
The real solution, according to Scripture, is the unlikely song of the saints, which is, how long, O Lord? Here's what I mean by that. The song that the saints have sang throughout the ages is always to be driven to despair, then to sing, how long, O Lord? And the response that the Lord gives to how long, O Lord, is remember when. He drives us back in our moment of despair, how long, O Lord, to his very promises. We are in despair, O God, how long will we sit here? Remember when Abraham couldn't bear a son? I kept my promise. Remember when Israel was enslaved for 400 years and I promised them that I would bring them out? Remember that? Remember how they were, in, uh, they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and I promised to bring them into the promised land? Remember how I promised to care for them and guard them against all the nations that come against them? Remember how I told them that I would bring them out of exile and bring them back home. Remember how I told you I would give you a Messiah. Remember how I told you that he would go to the cross and die for you. Remember how I said he would conquer the grave. Remember how I said I will not leave you in your sin. Remember how I said I will not leave you in the grave. Paul takes us and says, behold the heart of God who gives. But he gives us promises. Promises, though, that he keeps. And what's more unbelievable than that is the way in which he keeps his promises themselves, which is what we look to next in verse four. Not only does God give us his promises, he gives us his very son, Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. If you've kind of tracked with scripture, there, there's a certain amount of tension as you read uh, the storyline, especially of the Old Testament, like this growing tension that you're, that you're sitting there. And sometimes I, I think of it almost as um, uh, a certain composer who, who just likes to kind of uh, mess with his audience. And so there's the, the storyline of Scripture builds to this grand crescendo, and as you expect it to resolve and conclude, uh, the composer will modulate to a minor key, and then it starts over. You go back, and then it starts to build, and you think, here we go. Is it, we're going to reach an end, and then back to a minor key. And over and over and over again. But the storyline of Scripture, he's reaching all the way back, and Paul here too, is reaching all the way back to Genesis 3 to say that there was a, an audacious promise of God, something that, that is almost insurmountable in the moment to think of how will he keep this promise that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And the rest of the storyline of scripture is just describing that, but it regularly in anticlimactic ways. 
And, and so it's building this amazing amount of tension in anticipation of how will God keep this promise. And here's our grand resolve. The major crescendo in all of redemptive history is verse 4. That the fullness of time did come. And God sent his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. What's amazing in this moment, and church, don't be desensitized to this reality. What does God give his people? Nothing less than his very son. He gives his son who is with him in eternity past at his right hand. He sends him forth for us. May we never question the love of our heavenly father. May we never think that our father is cold and indifferent to us. He sent his son born of this woman, to, to redeem those who had rebelled against him. He gives to the uttermost, and that he gives his very son. But to what end, even? Well, to redeem those who are under the law, that we would receive adoption. He gives his son so that the rebels could become the children of God, too. Luther, commenting on this passage, uh, looks at this, especially verse 5, that he redeems those who are under the law, and he says that the Lord of the law became subject to the law to redeem those who were under the law. It's astounding. He comes to us and unites himself. He latches onto us beautifully and wonderfully and inseparably in order to redeem us from what we couldn't do ourselves. That by his blood, we have been healed. He gives us this to the absolute uttermost. He gives his son in order that we could be united to him by adoption. And the most glorious picture of that that we could possibly see. Now, it's no um, mystery now, at least to the students, so I guess I'll let the cat out of the bag. I do somewhat secretly enjoy the really bad Hallmark Christmas movies. And I, I don't know why I keep going back to them, because, again, they're all the same. Um, and I was watching one last year that, for some reason, stuck to my memory, uh, even though they all sort of blend together. But um, more or less, it was, I don't even remember really the title of it, but it was something about um, some, you know, it, it's uh, some... Prince is going to be made, uh, you know, the king, and uh, he doesn't really want to be the king because who wants to really be a king? And, you know, and, and he's there, and it's on his coronation day, but he feels like it's his duty, and then right before he's crowned and all of that, there's this moment where something, uh, somebody comes running into the room and stops the whole thing. Why? He can't be the king because he's adopted. You know, and I would say, spoiler, but they all end the same way, so you know how this is going to go. 
right? He, so so the, he's adopted, and now there's this tension, and oh, how will it ever be resolved? Oh, no, and as it were, the father, right before he had passed, had written in a clause that an adopted son could be king, and they all lived happily ever after, the end. Oftentimes, that's how we think of our adoption, that the father has simply written a hasty amendment to somehow sneak us in and call us the children of God. The adoption that we receive is significantly more profound than that. It's an adoption by the incarnation that the Son of God comes to us and takes on flesh and a, a true body and a reasonable soul and dwells among us to unite himself to us and then adopt us by a covenantal marriage union. And so now, as the church, we say we belong to Christ. I am a child of God because I'm with him and he is mine. And so in this, we look and we see that God has given us the uttermost by giving us his son. But we see even further than that because our hearts still are constantly telling us, you're no child of God, a wretch like you. How dare you ever speak to a father? The Lord gives us something else. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our constant inclination is to do what our first father, Adam and Eve, did in the face of God himself, and that's to run and hide. The natural person wants to flee before the very face of God. And yet here, what does God give us? He gives us, very unique, the spirit of his son. And, and it's interesting, too, that the spirit of the son enters into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It, it sounds kind of like Romans 8, but it's a little bit different in Romans 8, there, there's cries and groanings too deep for words. But here, it's actually the Spirit coming to our hearts to attest to the reality that we are indeed the children of God. And, and it's in this moment that a supernatural thing has taken place that finally, by the work of God himself, we come to the Father as our Father on the basis of Christ our King who we've been united to. But before this, there's something about us that will never approach our Father, our Heavenly Father. We'll always run from him. We'll always hide. And yet Paul brings out this reality to say that the Lord gives us his spirit in order that we would just come to God and say, Abba, Father, I need you. The great Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson told a story one time. Um, he had a missionary friend, uh, and his missionary friend had adopted a, a daughter, but you know, it was uh, his daughter that he had adopted was 
um, had been severely abused and had gone through several traumatic experiences. And so obviously there's, there's a lot of distance created by anybody. And so he, he had this child for years and years and years. And, and the child could never come around to ever calling him dad. Nothing that he could do. You know, he, dad, just say dad, please, please. And you know, the child just puts up their little arms and just won't come near to them. Ever. Until one night, he was sitting in his office working on something, and he hears his little adopted daughter come running through into the room, and she looks up at him and holds up her little shoe and says, Daddy, help. Her little shoelace had broken, and that was the thing that she loved the most, shoelaces of all things. And it was in that moment of despair and need for her father that she finally looked to him and called him what he is, Daddy. We need a spirit for us to finally come before the Father and see him for what he is. He's our Father. We come to him now and see the heart of God for what he truly is. He's not a distant father who signed papers and said, well, that's good enough. The heart of God is a posture with arms outstretched saying, come to me. Find comfort. Find love. Find deep satisfaction here by me. Don't put up your arms and push me away. What does God long for most? He longs for us to call him our father. And he gives us his spirit so that we'll do so. But finally, one other thing that Paul brings out that God gives us, and that's an inheritance. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's very interesting how he brings this, an heir through God. What does the father long to give his children? He longs to give us all things in Christ Jesus. It's interesting how the flesh in the world constantly is calling us, build your kingdom here. Make an empire. Do all of these things. Build this, and if you do this, if you're able to get this, that, and another, and build this kingdom, and build this empire, then you'll be free. You'll have an inheritance that will never be taken from you, because you built it. It's yours. Enjoy your freedom. But what we actually find that in that system, we are not free, but we're slaves and slaves to pirates. All they do is take. All they do is destroy. All they do is tear down. But the gospel and the heart of God says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Breathe, beloved. The kingdom of this world 
will be shaken. But yours is an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and never fading, being kept for you by Christ our King. So let us graciously give thanks that the inheritance that God has given us is all things in himself. To the furthest extent, to satisfy our souls and to glorify him, he has given us this. Let us see, O oh church, this season especially, that the heart of God is a heart that gives and gives and gives to the uttermost. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we come before you now boldly by our union to Christ, filled with the Spirit of the Son, crying out, Abba, Father, you who we have pushed away have drawn us near. Lord, may we see that you're the Father who gives and gives and gives to his children. And now, O oh Lord, as we come to this table, may we see clearly how you give to us even now and call us to remember your promises and feed our souls and find comfort for the weary. Let us see Christ and all that he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.